Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. Today's message, titled, The Lord is My Sherpa, marks Sean Barden's first sermon as Central's lead pastor. Let's dive into today's teaching. Mountain climbing is a dangerous endeavor. Uh, Imagine with me a, a jagged mountain of rock and ice so high that it that it pierces the atmosphere, that it seems to snag clouds from right out of the sky. At over 29,000 feet, of course, Mount Everest is the highest point on the planet. It is the very roof of the world. So high, in fact, that if we could somehow scoop it out of the Himalayas and we could drop it in the Rocky Mountains, if we could drop Everest in the Rocky Mountain, Air Canada flights, flying from Calgary to Victoria at their normal cruising altitude would fly right into the side of her. That's how high she is. It's the, it's the very roof of the world. And this mountain's beauty and her allure are unmistakable. Sixty years ago, this year, we saw the first successful ascent of Everest by Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. And since that time, many, many other climbers have summoned the courage to to try to make the dangerous ascent to stand at the top of the world. One so dangerous that just this spring, 17 climbers perished on Everest. And in fact, 60 years on since that first climb, with all of our advancements in technology and all of our gear and all of our understanding, still one in 25 climbers perishes in the attempt. 4.4% of climbers die on Everest. And that's because there are a myriad of hazards that await those who attempt to scale her. The first is what's called the Katumbu Ice Fields. This is this vast accordion of ice where chunks of ice the size of apartment buildings break free without warning and come thundering down and obliterate anything in its path. Climbers have to lash ladders together to to span crevasses so deep and so wide they can swallow a freight train. Deadly avalanches roar down there with terrible frequency. And you have to pass through these ice fields just to get to base camp one, of which there are four on Everest. And at base camp one, you could be met with temperatures so cold they'll devour limbs in minutes. Winds in excess of 160 kilometers an hour have literally blown climbers right off the mountainside. And at the height of Everest, storms move in at hyperspeed. And and they ambush climbers and they swallow them in this impenetrable cloud that is so dense that many have blindly walked right off the mountainside. But it's not the avalanches nor the fierce winds, nor even the ruggedness of Everest that makes her so difficult and dangerous to climb. It's something in us, in our physiology. You see, beginning at 26,000 feet, a full vertical kilometer below the summit of Everest begins what is called the death zone. This is where oxygen levels are so low that it cannot sustain human life for any length of time. In fact, if a helicopter were to land out here on Pandora 
and pick us up and fly us from here at sea level right up to the top of Everest and deposit us up there without acclimatizing, we would all be unconscious within three minutes. And because of a pulmonary embolism, our hearts would stop beating in 10. Our bodies are not equipped for a mountain like Everest. That's what makes her so difficult and dangerous to climb. Now you're probably wondering, what is he talking about mountain climbing here on his first Sunday? Well, let your minds move with me from the Himalayas to another mountain. This one's also dangerous and difficult to climb. This one's in Israel where it's dry and it's dusty. The book of 2 Samuel tells us that, that King David, his military campaign to try to recapture the Ark of the Covenant, which had been captured and, and, and carted away by the Philistines, was successful. And so he gets the Ark back, and this was monumental to the nation of Israel because the Ark, if you remember from the Old Testament or Maybe you watched Indiana Jones. The ark was a place from which Yahweh actually spoke to Moses. The ark represented in a very real way the presence of God. Not that God was confined to the ark like a, a genie in some type of bottle, but somehow the Lord's presence accompanied the ark. And so without it, the nation of Israel felt vulnerable to all her enemies. Without the ark, they felt destined to defeat and destruction. So their success as a nation was tied to the ark because God chose to link his presence in the nation with her presence with the ark. So when they had it, they had their God. And so when David and his army recapture the ark and they're bringing it home, Word gets out and, and people are overjoyed and people start traveling and they, they're starting to line the, the streets because they want to see the ark. They, they want to see it returned and the, this victory procession grows bigger and bigger and we read that the procession starts to snake its way up into Jerusalem, up to the Mount Zion where, where the ark belonged in the tabernacle of the Lord. And the people were overjoyed. Um, you guys remember the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver? Yeah, of course you do. Do you guys remember the gold medal hockey game between Canada and the U.S. at the 2010 Olympics? Some of you do because it was one of the most watched events in Canadian television history, so I know a lot of you saw that and watched that game. Do you remember the pandemonium that erupted when Sidney Crosby scored the overtime goal for us to beat the Americans? Can I say that again? That sounds so good. Do you remember when we beat the Americans and we won gold? Do you, do you remember that? I was at a pub in Fernie, and when he scored, I mean, just all heaven broke loose is what happened. People were cheering and dancing and and me and some guy that I never met in my whole life, we embraced for way longer and more fervency than two dudes ever should hug. But that was just kind of the climate at the time. And that same scene that I was a part of, it played itself out all over the country. You probably remember where, where you were in that game. Now imagine if beating the Americans to win gold at the 2010 Olympics 
came with something more substantial than just national pride. Now, I know this is far-fetched, but just let your imagination go with me. Uh, Imagine if at the start of the year, in January 2010, the federal government says, we want gold so bad that if we win gold in men's hockey, we will we will suspend paying income tax for the rest of the year for all Canadians. Now imagine, I know, I know, but imagine something like that happened, that winning actually meant something to us. It had a very real consequence to us as a nation. If that was the case, when Crosby scored, we would have all partied like newfies. Like we would have just been like, from sea to sea, we would have been celebrating. If you can imagine that, that feeling that would be in the nation of Canada then, that's actually something more akin to the mood that electrified the people of God. As the Ark of the Covenant is led back into its rightful place on Mount Zion, because the Ark meant that God was in the house again. He he was with them again. And so all of their prosperity and all of their identity for them and their children and their future, their, their, their whole identity and all the blessing that was to come was, was tethered to this ark. And scripture says that as this procession brings the ark back up the mountain into Jerusalem, that at the front of the procession is David, and he's singing, and he's dancing with all his might, and the people are singing with him, and do you know what they were singing? Psalm 24. Can I read it to you? The earth The earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundations on the seas. He established it on the rivers. So who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not set his mind on what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face, O God of Jacob. The God who created the soaring peaks of the Himalayas, who who gives life to all, is somehow, according to David, approachable. Is somehow reachable by his people. Now the people of Israel, they they knew this. They knew that their God was passionate about them. They knew that his passion for them ran deeper than them. It it wasn't because how big they were, how great they were, how lovable they were. God's passion for them was anchored in his own character, in his own heart. For Deuteronomy 7 says this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you. So this love propelled God to 
to dwell in their midst. And that meant that the most powerful, the most benevolent, the most terrifying force in the cosmos was with them, was in their midst. And yes, I say terrifying. Because they just had a graphic object lesson happen to them of just how terrifying the power of this God was. And that graphic object lesson came courtesy of this guy named Uzzah. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, um, we read that those who were transporting the ark from where it was recaptured from the Philistines back to where it belonged on Mount Zion, um, they were given specific instructions on, on how to move the ark. They were supposed to move it with poles. Nobody was supposed to touch it. And they kind of ignored that important detail. And we read that they put it in the back of a cart. And they're, and they're pulling it with oxen. And the cart hits a bump, and, and the ark shifts a bit, and this guy walking beside it named Uzzah, probably reflexively, he reaches out to steady the ark, and he touches it, and he drops dead right there. He, his death reminds them that there is a death zone if you are going to approach this God. Or if we were to take... David's metaphor of the mountain, we could say it like this, that not just any climber can, can scale the towering heights to God. Not just any schlep can abide in the blaze of his glory. And so David, as he's singing and as he's leading the nation up the mountain, he lays out the conditions of who can actually climb God's mountain. Who can actually ascend up to him? Who can stand before him? And he says this, it's he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. That's who. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm climbing this mountain, if I'm in this procession, and I just saw what happened to Uzzah, and I hear about who's allowed to start climbing, and I look at them, and I look at me, I'm like standing off the side, I'm letting the crowd go by, I'm working my way back to the back of the procession, because here's what I know. Like, my hands are dirty. And, and, and here, like, I, I'm a good guy. But a pure heart? I don't think so. And you'll get to know in time that my stories, especially the good ones, seem to get bigger and better over the years. And there's no Buddha statue in my house. But I understand what John Calvin says when he says the human heart is an idle factory. Because I find in myself this propensity to take things, even good things, maybe especially good things, and I make them the sum focus of my life, thinking that in pursuing these things, these are the most important ultimate things that somehow I'll have worth or somehow I will have identity. And so much of my life I have poured chasing after things that I think is essential for my future. And I've made them ultimate. And what I have done is I've taken these things and I've made them an idol. And so I don't know about you, but I know that the life that I have lived has disqualified me from David's condition. 
Like I, I fail out on all four of those conditions. Which leaves us with this declaration of this God on Mount Zion who, who wants to be with his people, who loves his people. This God who is approachable, but just not by me. So, so how is this good news? Like, why are the people singing? Why is David dancing with all his might in joy if this is who actually gets to approach God? Well, I think the entire understanding of this psalm rests on one little phrase at the end of verse 5 and 6. Who may ascend? the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive vindication and salvation from God. Such is the generation that seeks your face. And this is the phrase, O God of Jacob. Why did David want the people to remember that this God who they're hoping to approach is the God of Jacob. Why did he not use the phrase that is so common in scriptures? Why didn't he say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why did he not say the God of Moses? Why did he not say the Lord Almighty? Why did he want to remind the people that this is the God of Jacob that they are approaching? Well, to, to understand that and to understand this psalm, I need to tell you a story, which begins in Genesis 25. Uh, a mom gave birth to two sons. The first son is born hairier than a middle-aged Greek man in Speedos. <laughs> right? Sorry for the image, but this poor kid comes out part Wookiee. That's, that's how he comes out. And so dad takes one look at him, and mom says, what should we name him? He says, oh, I know. Let's name him Esau, which means hairy. That's right. Second son is born. And they name him Jacob, which means deceiver. Like, bummer name, hey? <laughs> Harry, deceiver, time for dinner. <laughs> right? And in time, Esau, as he grows up, he gets hairier and hairier, and he grows into his name. And Jacob, Jacob grows into his name too. And we read about how he pulls off this scam and he deceives his father and he swindles his brother out of his inheritance. And when Esau finds out about this, it goes without saying that he's furious at his, his deceiving younger brother. And so Jacob splits town like he's got a mob hit on him. And he's gone. And he goes to another land. And he meets some people and he starts to create a life there and he gets married eventually and years go by, but he still continues his deceitful practice. And years later, his actions, the consequences of his actions start to catch up with him like they always do. And he learns that his brother Esau knows where he is and is coming for him with 400 men. And Jacob knows that he and his family and his children are done for, that his brother is going to exact his pound of flesh. And after exhausting all his appeasement tactics with Esau, 
Jacob, in desperation, separates from his family. He sends his family over to one side of the river. He crosses the, crosses the Jabbok River. And there in this valley, all by himself, in desperation, he pleads with the Lord. And we read that an angel shows up. And in Genesis 32, there's this incredible story where Jacob tries to strong arm a blessing out of God. Tries to strong arm and wrestle a blessing out of this angel. And so they wrestle all night. And Jacob is desperate. He wants to be blessed. He wants his, his future liberated. He wants to be spared from his impending fate. And in desperation, as they're wrestling, Jacob screams, Bless me! Bless me! And we read that the angel says, What? is your name. And in my mind's eye, I see Jacob stagger back from the blow of this question. And in my mind's eye, I see him slump down in defeat, all the fight taken out of him. He slumps down like a man who who knows the truth and have been shown the truth of who he is and who he's proven himself to be over and over again. And he says, I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the one with dirty hands. I'm the one with an impure heart. I'm the one who has sworn by what is false over and over again to lift up this idol that I have chased after. I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. And the angel says, no. You are Israel. You're my chosen. You're my beloved. You see, Jacob wanted God's blessing, but God first wanted Jacob's honesty. Jacob wanted God to change his circumstance, but God wanted to change Jacob's name and thereby begin to change his character. And that's what God loves to do. And we call that grace. God loves to meet people in their hour of desperation, in their humility, in their honesty. Meet them there to change their name and then begin to change their character and change their stories. Now I tell you this because I've been doing this pastoring gig for a long time. And I know more people than I can count whose self-worth, whose sense of identity, their entire lives have been hijacked by some failure that they've committed or, or some sins that they have thrown themselves into and, and if you could interview those people's soul, like if you could put a mic up to their deepest heart and ask them, what is your name? You'd hear these little defeated voice saying, I'm a liar. Man, I'm a porn addict. I'm a fraud. I'm a hypocrite. I'm, I'm worthless. I am too tainted by life to ever approach this God. And, and here this morning, I, I know we get ourselves all prettied up and we drive down here to come to church and we sing our guts out and, and, and we can do the church thing pretty easy. But I wonder if there's some here who, who your soul 
in the quietness at two in the morning when you wake up and you're staring at the ceiling and if your soul could talk, what would your soul say is its name? Hear me central. Because I believe this with every ounce of my being. The God who is in this room right now, the God who is, is the God of Jacob. Amen. The God who meets men and women in their need and their honesty with the power of his grace and he changes them and he writes new stories and he lays out new futures and he dreams up whole new trajectories for their life. Ours is a God who is eager to meet us in our humility, who descends down to the lowest point into our spiritual poverty no matter how deep is the valley of our need, no matter how bankrupt our lives, he's willing to meet us there, to change our names, and to lead us into the life, and we call that grace, for ours is the God of Jacob, and David says, you've got to remember who this God is. Um, if Edmund Hillary were here, and, and I was to introduce him to you, the one, first one who climbed Everest, you know how I would legally have to introduce him? Sir Edmund Hillary. A new name, a new title was given to him by the Queen of England following his heroic ascent of Mount Everest. And after that, he was lauded with praise and honor. He was renowned across the world as a hero. But you know what I find so kind of humorous and a little bit sad about his story and about every other Everest expedition that includes uh, Mount Hillary, Hillary's, do you know what the one thing that they all have in common besides Mount Everest is that they all require a Sherpa to get up the mountain. Hillary had tending Norgay. You know what a Sherpa is, don't you? They're the ones who carry all the gear. They're the ones who guide the climbers to the top. They're the ones who, who open the route up the mountain. They are the ones who set the lines. They are the ones who plant the anchor. They are the ones who dig out the footfalls. They are the ones who carry all of the weight of the expedition on their back. It's the Sherpas. And you need a Sherpa to get to the top of Mount Everest. And you need a Sherpa if you're going to climb and ascend the mountain of the Lord. And Psalm 23, that famous psalm, proclaims that the Lord is our shepherd, willing to meet us in the deepest, darkest valley, even the valley of death. But Psalm 24 tells me that the Lord is also our Sherpa, willing to lead us up the mountain to the new places that God has for us. And I know that he can do that because the only person who lived who actually had clean hands who actually had a pure heart. The only person who ever breathed, who never lifted up his soul to an idol or ever once swore by what is false. The only person who rightfully, according to Psalm 23, could ascend the mountain of the Lord, chose not to and chose to walk up a different hill called Calvary, where he entered the death zone once and for all so that sin-stained hands and idle tainted hearts like ours could be redeemed and rescued 
For he who knew no sin became sin so that we might receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God our Savior. Such is a generation that seeks your face, O God of Jacob. That's a mashup between Corinthians and Psalm 24 if you're following along. And hear me central. This is why I'm excited to be here. Because I believe the Lord, our Sherpa, has new places to take us. You, as a disciple of Jesus, he's got new places to take you and new places to take us as a church. And I know that Central's been around for 100 years and it's done a lot of things and it's, it's, it's peaked a lot. Of, it's had a lot of heights. But hear me, we have not plateaued as a church. There are higher heights for us to go to. We have, our best days are not behind us. They're in front of us. You know why I know? Because the Lord is our Sherpa. And he wants to take us up the mountain where we plant new flags of life and liberty and gospel rescue, the kingdom of God in new places. And this is what I also know, that the Lord, our Sherpa, is asking us to trust him enough to believe in him enough that, that you would attach the, life, the, the, the line of your life to him by faith and then you would actually follow him where he wants to go. And so in the weeks to come, I'm, I'm gonna talk a bit about what that looks like. What type of place gets created when we actually live into our gospel identity and we actually start to, to, to put some traction, some distance into following Jesus in these key areas that he calls us into as individuals and as a church. I'm gonna unpack the specifics of that going forward. But here's also what I know, is that the climb isn't easy. And if we're gonna go to new heights, it will feel like risk. And the hazards will feel real. And you're going to need to be tethered to other believers and to Jesus, our Sherpa. And on top of it, there is no getting to where Jesus wants to take our church without us passing through the death zone, the death to self zone. Or as Jesus says it, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. And notice, like Jesus always is, there's no ambiguity. He's explicitly clear. He says, if anyone would follow me, not just the leaders, not just the, the gung-ho spiritual among you, not just those who like risk and like the heights, if anyone would follow me, Listen, church, it's really easy for you, for us to, to have a, a happy, mediocre kind of life, playing at religion, dabbling in Christianity. You, you, you don't need very much Jesus in order to do that. But if you want to ascend the mountain, if we want to ascend the mountain, if you want to get to that place where where we see God do new stuff and we see new terrain and it feels like we can see further and clearer than we ever had in our lives, you're gonna need, we're gonna need to follow Jesus in the death to self zone where your comfort will be challenged, where your priorities will be up 
ended where your sin will need to be confessed and repented of and put to death over and over again, where you will need to choose continually to live life differently, a live a life that's paced by Jesus. And listen, like, like, let's just be honest, that's really hard for us. I mean, to a person, we resist the death to self zone as much as we can. We want to detour around it, We want to find some loophole that we can kind of get out of it. We want to camp below it. We'll do anything but go through it because we like comfort. I mean, we live in Victoria for Pete's sake. In a nation of harsh climates from sea to sea, we pick the one place with the most comfortable climate in the country. It was a it was a reason in our decision making why because we like comfort and Jesus is going to lead us beyond our comfort because that's where the good stuff awaits church that's where wholeness and real joy that's where where you find a sense of purpose that gets you out of bed in the morning where you find a love that's big enough and real enough and experiential enough that you finally are at peace with who you are and whose you are. But only disciples who follow the Sherpa up the mountain get to that place where they know that life matters. It's not an easy climb. But everyone I know who's done it says, please, do whatever you can to get up the mountain with Jesus. Worship team, will you come on up? Will I I close with this? this story. I remember I read about one climber describing how she took the last few slow labored steps to get to the top of Everest. And and she got to the top just as the sun was rising. And she says that as she held her hands up in like this victory, she said she looked down over the Himalayan landscape and her shadow was like dozens of square miles. And she said like she never felt more alive and never in her whole life felt like a greater sense of accomplishment and being part of something bigger than her own little life. And then she said she had this terrible, horrifying realization that she can't go any higher. Like, this is as as high as it gets. In fact, every step from here on out is literally downhill from here. She said with every step down, she felt this this unexpected depression take root in her because she's like, I I thought this would be better and I thought I'd feel more fulfilled and I thought I'd be more alive and I thought I'd be more happy than this. And of course, that's not surprising because the purpose that every life and every human heart longs for, this intrinsic yearning that you have to be part of something that's significant, to be part of something bigger than you, That yearning that drives us to pursue so many things throughout our life is not found on any mountain, any human pursuit. It's found on God. In an actual living, following, moving in step with him, relationship with God. And the Lord, our Sherpa, wants to take you there. And so central, this invitation To ascend the mountain of the Lord is not just for the fittest or the bravest among us. 
You could be on a walker here and Jesus can still get you up the mountain. You have not plateaued. Jesus is not done with you. There are new things for you to learn and experience and God to do through you and do through us. But we have to be willing to follow. So the question is, will we have the faith and the courage to tether ourselves to Jesus and climb where he takes us? So let me end with Psalm 24, the end of it, and say this. May you, my brothers and sisters of Central, may you lift your heads. May you crane your necks high in faith, in faith-filled expectation that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Amen? We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. 